Again to the good trash genre cast, where we gather around a table and we get excited and about talking about films that you'll never discuss in a film studies course. Uh, maybe the case, maybe not the case. We are working a marathon, and that is why we've selected the film we've selected this week, which is Boys with a Z in with no I, The Hood, um, with the proper spelling of the article adjective. Uh, we are looking at that film uh, this week. Very, very exciting times uh, to be doing that. But before we get any further, let's go ahead and identify these here disembodied voices speaking to your brain. Who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon. And guys, do you want to see a dead body? <laughs> that keeps coming around. Thank you very much for that. Who are you, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. True, true. My name is Dustin Sells, and you're getting older, but I'm getting better. And I'm glad to be here with you all talking uh, boys in the hood. Furious Sells, as we like to Furious call them. Furious Sells. That's what we call them. That's what I'm changing my name to, in fact. <laughs> Legally. Furious Sells. It's the best movie name of all time. I know we're going to talk about that It sounds a lot. like a doctor describing like something going on in your butt. You got furious cells. Yeah, that's your problem. It's a brain cloud and furious cells. Those are, those are your two diagnoses. Um, so in case you're tuning into the Good Trash genre cast for the very first time, well, welcome to the middle of a marathon. Um, go back and see the other stuff, and it might help you along in the conversation and go back in the archive and see other good stuff. No, you can probably just stop at the start of this marathon. Uh, growing up over summer, where we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of uh, coming-of-age films yeah. in chronological order in yeah. terms of where they take place yeah we started with the 50s and stand by me we moved into dirty dancing in the 60s we hit almost famous in the 70s and now we're into the 80s and early 90s very early 90s very might as well be 80 it, it, it is the 80s i'm, I'm yeah. just gonna tell you right well now, and the, the film starts in the mid 80s and uh i think the, the the second half of this film is kind of about the fallout of the 80s yeah. uh for sure taking place uh well, well, we'll get into it. But, yeah, this has uh, been a fun marathon so far, and uh, Dustin is right. It, it would probably be good for your context if you're just now tuning in for the very – also, hi, welcome. But it is a free podcast, so do what you want. I mean, yeah, do whatever you want. You can listen right now. There are no rules. There, there are no there rules. There literally are no rules. Do but whatever you want. if it is indeed that there first time that you have tuned into this here show, um, what I want to say to you is this. Um, this is not a review show. Oh, no, it is an analysis show, and that means we will be doing some spoilerific spoiler ridges. We will talk about how the movie ends. And so, but we'll do that at the end of the show, or the last half of the show. And so this is what it looks like. We do a synopsis from The Voice of Cinema, which is obviously spoiler free we do a thumbs up thumbs down review section in which we avoid spoilers as best we can and sometimes we can better than others but we try to do that then we play a game which may or may not involve the mildest of spoilers of this film or other films in its orbit but afterward we get down to business and then all spoiler bets are off so that is your disclaimer and warning we cannot be sued because you have already clicked okay moving right along uh we are going to get into that synopsis right here and right now, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Voice of the Cinema, Mr. Voice, the voice. Mr. Voice, I, if de you're nasty. Definite article or Mr. Voice, Mr. Voice of the Cinema. Let's hear that synopsis, please. 
follows the lives of three young males living in the Crenshaw ghetto of Los Angeles, dissecting questions of race, relationships, violence, and future prospects. I don't know if calling Crenshaw a ghetto is necessary, IMDB <laughs> synopsis. Now, I don't know if starting with the word follows. No, that is not a complete sentence. That is an absolutely incomplete sentence. We've got to start writing our own summaries. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, that sounds like way too much work. No, I'm not yeah, yeah. IMDb has already done all this this great work for us. Thank you, uh, I guess. I, and I missed the dissection section, but um, that was probably part of the school scenes when they were working with the frogs. <laughs> right? and then e. Not that type of dissection. And then E.T. wanted to set them all free. Aw. Aw, wrong movie. Uh, yeah, when Ice Cube shows up with the Maurice's pieces, I was real into this film. <laughs> oh, man, I tell you what. It's like, no, no, I'll always be right here. It was so sweet. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, we will get to that in a little bit. But first, let's hear those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Do we like boys in the hood? I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? Yeah, this is this is a wonderful film. Uh, John Singleton has unfortunately yet to make a film as good as his debut. Uh well, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I haven't seen Abduction starring uh, Taylor Lautner. Uh, but, uh, Orson Welles, he ain't, but he did start that way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right, Dustin. He did start that way. I mean, he came out of the gate with uh, what is one of the definitive films of the 90s. I mean, it is a, a great film. It's the film that launched Ice Cube's acting career, if nothing else. I mean, it's important for that. Uh, it's also one of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s earliest, if not his first performance. Same with Morris Chestnut. I mean, it's, it, it is the debut for a lot of uh, really uh, strong uh, black actors who would go on to have great careers. Uh, and it's, it's a different uh, performance for Lawrence Fishburne, who is already a pretty established actor by the time this came out. But I think this is kind of his transition from uh, playing a young man into playing an, uh, you know, a, a grown man, I think. Uh, especially if you look at the films that he had done prior to this, he's usually playing younger characters. Um, but I, I think this is you can make the argument this is the film that launches Lawrence Fishburne's career as well. I mean, I, is this the first film he's credited as Lawrence instead of Larry, by the way? Does anybody, did anybody check on oh, that? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, uh, his oh, first, no, he is still credited as Larry in this film. His I first bet. appearance is Apocalypse Now. Yeah, no, I, I was aware of where that. Where he is baby Fishburne. Oh, he is very young. He's Min a baby. He, he could have been credited as Minnow Fishburne, in fact. Uh, uh, this, uh, no, I'm not going <laughs> to do This is not a dad jokes podcast. Yeah, he's he's going to try. This is totally a dad jokes podcast. It, it often is. Uh, it's a delightful film, uh, as, as delightful a, a film as one that's, you know, the sad can be. Um, it, I think it works really well. Uh, I think Singleton does a great job in his script and in his direction of laying out a story that could easily have come across as exploitative um, and, and does such a great job of having empathy throughout the entire film. Uh, even as he depicts behaviors that I don't think he probably condones. Uh, I mean, obviously, Doughboy is kind of an asshole, um, but is also a, a character with a gigantic heart. Um, and that's, I, I think, one of the strengths of the film is Doughboy. I think he's, uh, I, I hate to take that away from Cuba Gooding Jr., but Trey is just not as interesting as Doughboy. And that's, to me, one of the only weaknesses of the film is that it does focus uh, on Trey, who is... Kind of the least interesting character. Um, Furious, the the character that Lawrence Fishburne plays, his father is more interesting. Uh, Doughboy's more interesting, and uh, Ricky's more interesting, and, and that is kind of unfortunate. I think the only other uh, thing that's missing from here, and again, this is a young man's first film. The female characters are going to be lacking sometimes, especially in a young man's first film. It's it takes some perspective and some age to realize when you're you're coming up short for your female characters. I think. Uh, and which isn't to say that, you know, any of the female characters in this film are bad. I think they're just a little underserved. Um, there are some some acting, you know, 
moments, some some line readings that are a little stilted coming from some of the younger actors. But again, we're talking about younger actors here. Uh, I'm I'm looking for things to say that are negative, so yeah. it's not just me heaping praise on the film because I think it works. No, I think incre- it's okay. Yeah, I think it works incredibly well. Uh, I I think, and you know, this is. I cannot think of a film like this uh, earlier than Boys in the Hood. I think Boys in the Hood is responsible for Juice, Menace to Society. I mean, all these yeah. other films about uh, other films we'll probably talk about over this episode. Films about growing up in the inner city being black in america i i can't think of i mean obviously yeah you've got superfly and you know all, all these other these black exploitation films from the 70s but they're not really i mean they are definitely issues films in some regard but they're couching that those issues in being genre cinema they're they're sneaking issues in front of white audiences as opposed to being directly about hey this is a story that you need to hear that because you're not hearing it elsewhere um and again, I think the film does that without ever feeling like an issues movie at the same time. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we move further into the show. But yeah, that's that's my thumbs up. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that review, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, let's hear your thumbs up, thumbs down review. No, I, I, I agree with Dalton. I think it's a, I think it's a great film. I, I, I reacted to it very positively uh, upon watching it, and I was um, very impressed by... Uh, a lot of the elements of it, Larry Fishburne here is fantastic. Um, he looks like a fox, but he just puts on a great performance. He is incredibly handsome in this film. Ice yeah, Cube. It's, it should be illegal to yeah. be that good looking. It's it's ridiculous. If only he'd had those kind of fine suits that he gets later in his career in Hannibal. Um, I mean, that starts back in The Matrix, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, geez, uh, getting past his gorgeousness, um, I think it's a great film. I, I, I think Singleton does some wonderful stuff here. Uh, in telling the story, I think it's an important story. Um, I think it's uh, especially if you're, you know, maybe from the middle part of the uh, country where we don't see those things on the TV, like uh, you know, they're not seen, they're not spoken about, and so it's a, it's a big culture shock. And uh, I think that's why the 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 stand by me moment of this film is so important uh, when we get to that. Um, yeah, d- it directly draws that line. Yeah, yeah, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, agree with Dalton that the, uh, you know, and I don't know if it's the character, if it's Cuba himself. I don't know necessarily what the thing is with Trey. I couldn't decide. And I didn't want to, yeah. I didn't want to come in swinging on Cuba's performance. D- and it's, but you're right. I, I think it, wait. it could and be I wonder, a little of column A, little column B. And I wonder if part of that is just my experience with, uh, Cuba post. I mean, I've seen most of his, a lot of his stuff post this film and mm-hmm. that kind of, I think, uh, sways that reading a little bit. But I'm I'm not that super interested in Trey, uh, and I'm a lot more interested in Furious. I'm a lot more interested in Doughboy. You know, like you said, Ricky's you know t- such a tragic character, and so I, I I like where the movie goes with it, and I I think it's very mem- um, memorable. Had a very visceral reaction to a scene later in the film uh, that takes place, mm-hmm. and so uh, yeah, for that it, it I, I think it's a standout. I, I'll probably revisit it. I, I think it's a very uh, keystone moment in uh, early 90s cinema american cinema this is a first time for you yeah okay yeah this is uh the the first time in this entire marathon that i'd seen one of the movies before yeah and this is is definitely a subgenre i'm not super familiar with either so i i did a real deep dive uh into the 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 90s uh hood movies is the only way i can think to describe the genre and ghetto exploitation i mean and that's kind of where unfortunately it ends up going right i mean menace to society um, I think is a, is a very good film and doesn't go down that route. But I think uh, once Hollywood realizes this is a market where money can be made, 
I, I think the voices get a little less authentic throughout the mid '90s. I mean, that's why you know the there there is the film "Don't Be a Menace" yeah. in South Central. The long title kind of I mean, wraps up this subgenre it, at the time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I think it's super. I mean, I, I, this is coming out right at the same time as you know. I mean, NWA obviously has already broken yeah. into the mainstream, but I think I think having this film helps. You know, you've already got you know, white kids in middle America falling in love with hip-hop at this time in America. I think it's, you know, this film kind of helps push it over the fence, right? And yeah. it gets middle America talking about and it. This, this, is a, this is a huge film. Well, it did really well. Yeah, and this, yeah, it, it was one of the most financially successful of the year because it had a budget of like $6 million and it made 56 or $60 million. Which is a lot of money in early 90s money. Yeah, it money. is. It's huge. Um, it's, uh, and it, this is what, right before, right after Rodney King? Um, the film is set, I think, right before Rodney King. It is set, and I believe it is shot before. Yeah, it's 91. Yeah. Okay. Rodney King's 93, 92. Okay, that's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, it's a- April 92 uh, is the Rodney King riots. Well, so maybe the oh, – shit, if those the, are the riots, then – well, we're bad at history. We'll get back to that in a moment. Yeah. We can talk about that much later in the show. Uh, as far as reviews, like the film. I think it's a great film. Uh, so, Dustin, what do you think about boys in the hood i like it a lot i think there's a lot to say for it and i think you guys have said the things that are good about it and we've sort of been um uh, nibbling around the edges of what's really broken this movie this movie does a thing that these kinds of movies tend to do and it's okay as a as a trope and so we have a vessel through which we are viewing the events and that is a, a lesson it's a will wheaton character if you're looking at stand by me and uh, that is uh, trey's character uh so but that character is a little weaker a little less drawn because it is more the observer sort of character but then kuba gooding jr plays this character and kuba i man, i'm not happy i'm not impressed i i'm disappointed uh, besides a moment uh in which he is uh making a face in front of his dad um not great in the acting department i'm, I, I'm gonna say with uh, kuba there i really like just to defend his performance a little bit i do really like the scene with his his girlfriend at about the two-thirds point um where he comes in swinging yeah I, I, it's it's a little it's it's stagey it's a little overacting the, yeah. the swinging's a little much the and again without getting too spoilery too early in the show there are moments of that that performance in that moment that i really like there are line deliveries in there that are good and i think maybe that's what i'm thinking there's some some face work that i think doesn't go too big um it's just big enough but i i get where you're coming from i do and and i think that's sort of that general kind of malaise about not wanting to say this is one of the best movies i've seen you know it's one of those things that keeps a a movie from being a a four-star film out of of a four-star rating or something like that it's it's one of those things if oh if it had that you know it goes from a three and a half to or a three to a four you know three and a half to a four whatever that ends up it's a half star loss is what i'm trying to say yeah i would agree with that and uh so that's that's really the only week i think soundtrack choices are great Mm -hmm. i think uh larry fishburne's performance is amazing ice cube uh kills it i'm just i love i love mom mom is so good and uh, I don't yeah. have the actress's name, though I know her, um, and I can see her face even now in other things that she's done. But uh, that being said, she's super, super solid. You're going to be uh, really embarrassed and really mad at yourself. Uh, I know, because my brain's just not doing it because I'm yeah, talking. Yeah, that's Angela Bassett. Dude. It is Angela Bassett. Okay, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. It's like, I know who that is, but yeah, yeah, yeah. She's killing it. Underutilized Angela, Angela Bassett, for sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's nothing, nothing uh, else really to complain about. I think it's paced perfectly. I think it's uh, narratively, it follows a line that is interesting um, without being too formulaic and it does everything else right except Cuba uh, doing, well, again, and Cuba might have, Cuba, Cuba, I can't even say his name right. However you pronounce it. Cuba. Cuba could have done more with a more drawn character, but when it's an underdrawn character with an underperforming actor, that's when you find the problem. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I think he, he's got – the character Trey has a lot of the same stuff that Will Wheaton's character in uh, Stand By Me has. There's a lot of blanks left open for the audience. I, I think the difference is Will Wheaton, you know – I think being young, not old enough to have picked up, you know, man- yeah. mannered acting yet, you know, mm-hmm. the rawness of that child performance. I think he's able to fill in those blanks a little bit more successfully. And that's I, probably I, fair. I, and I think that's, I think that's where the fall off for Trey probably is for you uh, and for me as well. Do you think it would work better if you flip Cuba and Morris Chestnut, Ricky and Trey? Mm. I think Cuba could have played Ricky very interestingly. Yeah, and I, I think I, so. Yeah. I, I think Morris, Ch- which isn't to say, I mean, I think they're both very talented yeah. actors. I do um, think Morris does better though with what he's got, and, and I think I think maybe Morris is a little bit further along in his uh, his skills at this point in his, his career than Cuba is. Yeah. Exactly, his craft is is there a little bit more because Rick, man, Morris Chestnut's performance of Ricky is really really good. Yeah. This guy that like has nothing going on on the uh, on the surface, and yet you can tell has everything going on underneath the surface. He's he's great. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, anyway, that that's where I land. I, I do like the movie a lot, except Cuba. It's Cuba. I just not not feeling it. I get that. So I get that. That is uh, where I'm at, and where we land. There you go, dear listener. Now you know our biases, and we'd like for you to be part of this conversation, especially you, new listener, who's tuning in for the very first time to this particular episode. I am speaking directly to you, and I want to tell you how you can be part of the conversation by having Dalton tell you instead of me. That's right. It's time for the part of the show where I try to keep it short and sweet and not let Arthur or Dustin get too bored. It's Social Media Corner, uh, where I talk to you about how to ride the merry-go-round slowly taking us to hell. And uh, you can use that merry-go-round to talk to us and tell us how dumb it is you think uh, it is for three white guys to be talking about boys in the hood. I agree. Correct. Uh, But look, we're not going to do a coming-of-age marathon and only do movies about white people. That would be shitty and dumb, honestly. Um so, uh, as we often and always try to do when we're talking about films that are about experiences outside of our scope, please bear with us. But if you, we do totally whiff it or fuck it up, this is how you can get a hold of us to tell us that we could do better. Um, first of all, we are on Twitter, at good underscore trash. Uh, also, lots of fun things going on over at good underscore trash. Not just feedback, but also uh, sharing all kinds of fun articles that would drop quite a few over the last week uh we we try to do a good job of uh casting a wide net and sharing uh good articles and essays with you uh arthur always uh stirring the conversation pot over there quite successfully um if you have some longer form feedback that's not going to fit in 280 characters that's going to be good trash genre cast at gmail.com we will read every single thing you send to us we are also on facebook that's facebook.com forward slash gtm you don't need to be on there though and frankly, you probably don't need to be on Twitter that much either. Um, but Dalton, you, you might be asking yourself, yes, listener, what can I do for you? How are we supposed to get a hold of you? Well, also the email. Uh, that's a much less toxic way. Uh, you don't have to hurt yourself. You don't have to s- smoke a digital pack of cigarettes to get a hold of us that way. 
Um, but also, if you want to be part of it, if I've you know eliminated your favorite social medias and you're thinking, but I just got to do it, well, okay, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your desired podcast uh, delivery system. Uh, finally, if you want to be part of uh, what we do here, if you want to help us keep the lights on, help pay for our hosting fees and all that good stuff, uh, that's patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, lots of fun bonus content over there. I just uh, saw um, Mission Impossible Fallout last night. I recorded a hot take in a hot car uh, that will be uh, up for our Patreon, Patreon donors with our very own Frightful Fem Kirsten Thurkelson uh, accompanying me on, on those hot nice. takes. Um, if you want to hear my dumb voice some more other than on this show, uh, I'm also going to be on uh, the uh, Cinematropolis podcast, which is the Cinematic Schematic with Caleb Masters. Uh, that should be, by the time this is in your ear, that should be out on the web. So uh, I'm going to go over there and represent Good Trash and talk about uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. And uh, if you were wondering, yes, we are on Zanga and MySpace. So uh, There's no way we are. Uh, we've been rounding out our top eight. I think we've got something <laughs> locked in. You know, Tom actually, is in the mix. We do indeed have an inactive Tumblr page. I remember that. That's true. And we have a somewhat active Instagram That's, account. That is accurate as w- well. What's the Instagram account in case you get a, a bug to, to get active it's again? at Good Trash Media, okay. I believe. Yeah. Um, Arthur, I would not have been the least bit surprised if you had set up a Zang on a MySpace. <laughs> Zang is still active? I don't think so. I don't think so. We, no, wait. Never mind. We don't have a Reddit People mentioned us on the Reddit podcast Correct. one time, and that delights me to no end. I am active on there, but we do not have a... You're just lurking? We do have an account, I think, but we just don't ever use it on there. I yeah. use my own account. That's dangerous. Yeah. That's, da- that's yeah, a dangerous place. That. I'm scared of Reddit. I don't need any of Dalton's tweets resurfacing in five years and getting us uh, kicked off the internet or something. I actually did a tweet search recently to see if there's anything <laughs> shitty that I said when I was 21. I did, I did pretty good. Thank I you. was pretty proud of myself. Well, thank you. I've I've always done a pretty good job of not being a, a dickhead on the internet. The last thing we need is the alt right coming for us. Oh my god, it would be so easy to dox me too. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you're I the think, easiest target. I think about it all the time. Oh, I'm the easiest tar- target because I talk about how the alt right's a bunch of Nancy boys. <laughs> yes. Come come find me, you dirty rotten Nazi motherfuckers. Um, I'm you just sorry. want to see Dustin defend you and punch a Nazi in the face. Yeah, you don't want me, Papa Baron, to protect my boy here. <laughs> I can take care of myself, Dad. Well, of course you could. <laughs> it's a real. As fear. long as you're online. This is a real Furious and Trey Styles the, dynamic we got going on the, over the, here right the, now. The, really, it's not about that. It's about me having an opportunity to exercise um, the efficient distribution of violence. <laughs> Look, if you're listening to this show and you find yourself, uh, let, let's. I'm going to be generous and say compelled by the ideology of the alt-right. Maybe listen to more of this show. Uh, we're going to try to talk to you. Go listen to the, when we talked about Spider-Man. I think we did a good job talking about yeah. how toxic masculinity yeah. can make you a butthole. Look, I get it. Being a white guy uh, can be existentially daunting sometimes. It's not actually hard, uh, it, but, you know, it makes you feel icky a There's lot. There's a lot of guilt. There's well, a lot of guilt that you don't know how to process, and well, sometimes and I, you turn that on other people. And I think one of the p- specific problems of toxic masculinity is sort of dealt with in this film. And I, yes, and I it think is. that would be a, you know, I think just keep on listening because we might be able to help um, offer another perspective. Man, I certainly hope so. Uh, I cannot believe I walked back uh, calling the alt-right motherfuckers, but uh, I'm trying to swear less and be less mean on this show. So he says it anyway. Well, you know, I'm not going to pretend I didn't already say it's a backhanded. It. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a half of a backpedal. <laughs> there is a tendency to have that kind of relationship with their mothers, so I agree. <laughs> oh, boy, there it is. Look, we hate you. Uh, and- <laughs> 
and that's all there is to it. Uh, it's it, look, we're trying to love our neighbor. It's you're making it real damn hard, boys. Um, that's it. I'm done with this this part of the show. Um, oh crap, guys! What? It's time to play the game. And we're back with this week's game is how would we structure our life stories based on film? That's right. How we'd bu- structure our lives based on film. Brought to you by Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. It's got structure. Moving on. Well, that was very efficient, Dustin. Uh, it's now a one-man show. Yeah. I, We're out. He, yeah. He just took care of my job for me. I waited on you too long. Now, there. if it takes no. over social media, we'll be good. Uh, honestly, it's fine. I, I I was in the middle of still pulling up that, that record for you. Um, <laughs> so, I... Uh, if you need clarification, listener, because I did. I asked Arthur pitch this game, and I liked the idea a lot, but I, I wanted some clarification. Arthur said, okay, if if you were in a position where you're making uh, your biopic um, or, you know, trying to write a screenplay about your life, what are the three films you would show the cast and crew to help help them get what you're going for? Okay, okay, okay. All right. Uh, that's going to change my thoughts a little because I, I picked one that I would structure it after. Um, oh, okay. That's fine. Well, that's fine, and yeah. I, I actually did too. Okay. It's, it's, it's essentially what are the three films you would use as the influence for your coming okay. of age? Yeah. Story? What What are the three coming of age films that you feel like if you put them in a blender would kind of start to get out your story? Because we've okay. been talking, and yeah. I, I like this game, Arthur, because throughout this marathon, we've been talking a lot about you know how these coming of age films personally you know relate to us and how how they speak to us as you know men who have come of age. Um, so I, I like this game a lot, Arthur. Why don't you start us off with your your first pick? I think we ought to maybe maybe do all three instead of round robbing and this because I think okay. they paint will, the whole picture because it'll, it'll paint the picture. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think that I structured I that. a little bit better. Okay, gotta get back in the uh, the proper mindset. <clears throat> hey, buddy. <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> and and, and scene. Usa. Fine. Um, so my first pick, uh, I, I think a lot about obviously coming of age. So I think about parents and, and relationships. And so this is a no surprise, I'm sure. Uh, but Logan, I, I think the, uh, the parental relationship between Logan and Laura X 23, um, is very reminiscent to my own uh, relationship with my father. And so, uh, I'll kind of talked about this quite a bit in the past on other shows, so I won't go too in depth there. Uh, but as far as like a dynamic of between characters, I think Logan uh, is really the starting point there. Um, moving on, I grew up in the church. I went to a small Christian university. And so I, I think a lot about Saved. Um, nice. As a comedy. Yeah, man. And just that dynamics that it gets right uh, within that atmosphere and that element. Um, and, I, and I'd like to bring in some of that, I think. I think that's kind of key, especially to my own sense of humor and just the growth of ideology and things like that at that point in my life. Uh, so I would definitely bring in Saved. Uh, but finally, I grew up in a small town, um, and, you know, it wasn't super small. You know, we had uh, a small Walmart, and that was about it. We had a Sonic. We didn't even have McDonald's, you know. It was 2,000 people maybe. So it's kind of small, but not super small. I think you're a little smaller than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, still, there's a certain dynamic in small towns, the way people talk and the way people, uh, not just their diction, but also rumors and gossip and things like the relationship between people is very close and very dynamic and unique 
um, but also there are certain uh, influences like football is also always a huge cultural thing, you know, things like that sports bring people together, all that kind of stuff. And a film I recently saw that really kind of captured that uh, spirit um, is Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show. Nice. And so I think that would be the third one uh, that I would choose because it really captures that small town essence uh, and those dynamics and those people. Um, and so I think putting those all three together, that uh, with Saved, uh, spliced in there with my own kind of narrative with Logan, uh, I think that would be the starting point for that 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 film uh, if I were putting that on paper. Nice. I like those selections very much. That that does feel like a very Arthur set of picks. Very well done. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your selections? And then I come at you with my claws. <laughs> Bub. Bub. That is how that movie ends. Um, so I, I want to start off with, uh, which it's probably an obvious pick, but we'll, we'll dive into the particulars. It's Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Um, I really like the the vignette structure of Boyhood a lot. Uh, I, you know, obviously that was kind of the selling point of the film. The argument has been made that the only reason anybody ever talked about that movie was the 12-year production history and the vignette structure. But I think that takes a lot away from the film because I, I think it's very smart to to use that vignette structure to to advance a life, to drop you in and out of moments of a character's life, uh, and you just go, oh, okay, this is what's happening now. Okay, I, I, can, I can hang with this. Um, but more specifically, you know, this is a, a film about uh, Eller Coltrane's character growing up in suburban Texas. I grew up in suburban Oklahoma. Eller Coltrane is the same age as my younger sister. Like, I'm not that much older than the titular boy of boyhood. Um, I'm, you know, graduated high school about... You know, five years before the the, the title character does, um, so I this film spoke to me for a lot of very obvious reasons. But I also like really, uh, I feel like that film nails uh, uh, mother son relationships really well. I mean, Patricia Arquette's performance in that film was you know obviously critically mm-hmm. acclaimed, uh, but I I think Linklater just really gets that dynamic very well, especially you know. Uh, being a child of divorce, uh, obviously, uh, I, that speaks to me a little bit. And also, that realizing as you are are finally coming of age that you have not given your mother the credit she deserved uh, and you have uh, been too hard on her for being a hard-ass to you, uh, I, I think that film really gets that. And um, that's a dynamic that I can definitely appreciate uh, getting to a certain age and realizing, oh, dad was fun, but mom was putting in the work. Um, and again, you know, my, my birth father is not, not that similar to Ethan Hawke's character. Actually, I think the dynamic, uh, that that character has with Ethan Hawke's character is more similar to my dynamic with my adopted dad. Uh, but I, I really appreciate all the things that that film has to say about, you know, what it's like to, again, there's plenty of movies about growing up in the suburbs, but I think Boyhood just really kind of nails it more than, uh, than other films that have tried to tackle that, that same very well-tread ground. Uh, next up is The Way, Way Back, uh, a film that we almost very nearly did for this marathon and ended up uh, deciding it wasn't going to make the cut. Uh, but it's a film that I know Arthur likes a whole lot, and I'm a big fan of it as well. Um, the things that work so well about that film, other than uh, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash's really great, really, really funny screenplay, is the dynamic uh, between the Duncan, the lead character of that film, uh, played by Liam James, 
his friendship with adults. I, I mean, specifically Sam Rockwell's character, Owen, but he, he's friends with a lot of adults in that movie. Uh, and I had, uh, just because, you know, my parents had really good neighbors when we were growing up, I had a lot of friends that were adults uh, that kind of carried over to, you know, my friendship with Dustin. I mean, Dustin and I are uh, 10 years apart, and uh, that 10 years feels like a smaller difference the older I get. <laughs> Hold on, I'm not calling you old. Uh, I know that's usually where this is going. I mean, he, he did say it's a kind of a backhanded. I'm getting there. Give me a second. I'm not getting older. I'm getting better. Uh, but uh, you, you, that's right, Dustin. True. You just get better every day. Uh, you're in better shape now than you were when I met you, so that's something. Uh, look at him. He looks great. He's going to outlive us all. Oh, he certainly will. Um, have you seen all the dumb stuff that I do? Yeah, he's going to outlive us all. Um, but I, I feel like there not, are not a lot of films that, I mean, there's a couple of films that I can think of. Uh, but it's usually a, a, a goof, right? Like Drillbit Taylor with Owen Wilson is one of the only ones that comes to mind immediately. And I think the way, way back, like, does a really good job of capturing what it's like to be a kid who doesn't have a lot of friends and, you know, makes friendships where you can find them. And I think the adults that befriend children, uh, you know, obviously that can be gross, but it doesn't have to be. I think there's plenty of adults who see kids who have a hard time being a kid and remember what that was like. And I think... Those are great people to, to have in your life when you're a kid are the people that still have that perspective uh, and can remember not having a fun time being a kid. Uh, and I think The Way, Way Back just nails that. And it's a great film about summer and uh, about growing up in the summertime. Uh, my, my last pick, I, I decided it, I, I needed two films to, to help me out. So we, I did cheat a little bit, but it's these two films together. Uh, the first one is Ferris Bueller's Day Off because, look, that's what it's like to – to think you're hot shit in high school. And uh, I definitely had that that syndrome a little bit. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and act like and? I was. Well, I think I got better. And that's where The Spectacular Now comes in. Because I think yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is, is a delightful film. But Ferris is a, an unrepentant shithead. Um, and it's it's cute at the time. But I, I think we as we look over culture over the last 30 years, I think it's probably been bad for teenage boys. Um, and I think The Spectacular Now much more accurately depicts what it's like to be that that guy who thinks he's got everything figured out at 18. Um, and I think Miles Teller, um, you know, the promise of that film, uh, <laughs> the promise of Miles Teller in The Spectacular Now has not quite been delivered on yet, I feel like, but he is great in that film. So is Shailene Woodley. And I think that that film does a really good job not only of capturing substance abuse uh, among teens, uh, but also capturing, you know, really intense relationships among teens and, and, and does so in a way that, you know, is is realistic, but is also, you know, not – it captures that feeling of teen love very well. But I feel like a lot of films write about teen love the way the adult would write about adult love, and that's just not the case. I think it's it, – it does a disservice to uh, teen relationships to write about them like they're adult relationships. And I think The Spectacular Now gets that dynamic very, very right. So those are my picks for my uh, my coming-of-age story. Dustin, uh, close us out, bud. Take us home. What do you think? All right. So a uh, couple uh, – so, yeah, two films to watch and then one film to structure. And also, I mean, to watch, uh, even though I don't – I think the third film's not as good. Here we go. First film is The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut. Uh, it has got this certain energy and uh, the way in which uh, Dolan's character uh, just – I mean, 400 Blows is basically a French euphemism for raising hell. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's 
accurate. And uh, not only that, but there's a way in which uh, Truffaut's camera captures the sort of energy of that and some of the joy that goes in some of the deeds of my misspent youth. And so uh, that's that's definitely a first pick for there. Um, and then flash forward to adult me, um, and that would be looking at First Reformed, in which, uh, you know, there's there's history and there's, there's life and there's those sort of things, dark nights of the soul with which one wrestles, and also the embrace of a radical politics and uh, in a way in which you sort of find faith again uh, in that sort of discussion. And I think First Reformed, and again, stylistically, perfect uh, kind of film to be thinking about uh, for a movie about my life. Um, lastly, I think you structure it like uh, the TV miniseries for Stephen King's It, that you go back and forth between those, because there is, I like a, a, as I look back at my life, there is this sort of mirroring of yeah. what child Dustin was doing and what adult Dustin is doing Hell now. yeah, man. And yep. there have been confrontations and conversions and uh, desolations and consolations in my life um, that are very parallel and there uh, and even there there's a there's a weird way just a, a just a narrative device that king uses of not amnesia i don't not remember things but i don't necessarily always think about and uh, consider them and that sort of parallelism yeah. also and how the past rears its head in the present and how those monsters find themselves slayed at the end i think if the story ends well um would be a good way to tell said story i, I know exactly what you mean man that was kind of where boyhood came for me yeah. because there's like I have a lot of very fuzzy memories of childhood, and yeah. but then there's moments that are crystal clear. So, yeah. and, and I'm sure I'm sure that speaks to a lot of people. Um, that's probably why Linklater chose to structure the movie that way. But I, I think you're right that both it and Boyhood, and I think any film that's kind of inventive in its it, the way it talks about youth, like. Look, Stand By Me is great, but nobody remembers their childhood that clearly. Even mm. even if it's a big, like, goof-off like that. Like, I, I've had a couple of weird, crazy... You would remember seeing the body. Yes. You wouldn't remember anything else no, about that trip, you, probably. You would not remember... You would, you maybe, would remember the leeches. You would remember yeah. the leeches. You would remember the train. You would maybe remember telling the story. Uh, I mean, uh, if you're Gordy, you told that story, you might recall telling the story. Yeah, yeah. but that's probably all you're going to remember. Yeah. You're not going to remember Sick and Balls, probably, because you almost got run over by a train. No. Um. I, yeah, but I, I think you're right, Dustin. I think Stephen King really effectively, um, you know, only having heard about the novel secondhand, I, I love what I've always heard that that novel does about the way in which you kind of remember things as events in your adulthood remind you of your childhood. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I like those picks, man. And so there you go, dear listener. We'd love to hear you. That was a very personal game. It was. It, was. it, was it got real. It got real. Second real. week in a row. Yeah, yeah man. We got to quit doing that. Well, we've got to get this uh, suicide jacket off of Dustin, uh, but once we do, we'll get down to business. Yet again, to bring you that spicy analysis uh, right here and right now. Uh, I've got a handful of things that I want to talk about. And, of course, if you guys have something, I hope you bring it up. We're going to do that roundtable style like we tend to do. Um, real quickly, uh, between uh, it coming up earlier in the show and now, I did do the research for us on Rodney King. Uh, so shit's about to get wild uh, on this timeline, guys. Uh, so this film comes out um, in March of 1991. Um, the Rodney King beating uh, happened in. Did, 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 uh, oh, I'm sorry. The the beating happened in March 3rd, 91. Uh, this film came out in the summer of 91. So it would have been 
all over the news when this film hit theaters. Okay, so um, it's a post King um, release, but a pre King production. Yeah. Um, and then the riot would have happened, obviously, in April of 92, probably right around Oscar time when this film was, you know, getting all those nominations. So uh, the, the timeline is pretty tight there um, in, in ways that are, you know, obviously don't inform the film because, as Dustin mentioned, yeah, the production is going to be prior to that. But I, I think it's probably going to have a lot to do uh, with the conversations around that film happening at the time. And uh, it's, it's it really is a damn shame that uh, there wasn't somebody out there screaming, hey, did you did you see John Singleton's movie? Maybe we should be talking about, you know, uh, societal inequality and uh, institutionalized racism instead of talking about, you know, whether or not Rodney was high. Well, let me throw another fly in the uh, historical serum there. Um, it is, uh, you notice that Rick is wearing a uh, number 42 gold and red uh, jersey, which is O.J. Simpson's number. It has Rick written on the back, and we are three years out from the O.J. trial, which is also uh, sort of in the wake of all this stuff as well. Man, I did not even catch that. Yeah. Wow. He, so, yeah. yeah I mean, I knew 42 Jackie Robinson, obviously, but I'd, I'd forgotten that that was O.J.'s numbers, too. It's, yeah, it's USC jersey. It's, exactly. Yeah, yeah, with the red and gold. So, yeah. yeah. And USC is sort of where he's wanting to try out for as yeah, well. Yeah, that's, you're that's, absolutely right. So uh, those those OJ references are very hot and heavy. Um, little did we know uh, what might go down in about three years later, and that is all directly connected to the King stuff as well. Um, so anyway, uh, lots of good stuff going on there. I mean, obviously it's all connected to King stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the, the whole of uh, early '90s discourse is. I, I think you can make the argument that all of American discourse in the early '90s is about. The Rodney King riot. Uh, and yeah, I think be- it's the beating point. and the riot. I think it's a totally fair point. So that's interesting and a good sort of historical frame for that. I, well, let's go ahead and talk about that first the way in which the film engages with the issues of race. What do we think about casting our Mark Furman cop the way we cast him in this film? Uh, to describe the listener how he's cast as a, as a black man, as, a black as a, man. an older black man. And I, yeah, I, I think. Uh, Singleton is actively making a point that, um, yeah, people are racist, but more importantly than that, institutions are racist. And I I think that's definitely what Singleton's probably trying to get at with with that casting choice. Uh, And the actor that uh, I I don't recognize him from anything else, but that man is terrifying. He is scary. And he sells those moments of being the scariest human being on the planet. Well, and the way he turns it on and off is what makes it terrifying. It's deeply upsetting. I think the choice to have him be the cop that shows up at Trey and Furious's home when Trey's a kid and have him be the cop that pulls Trey yeah. over, I think that's a really, really interesting touch. Um, I, I don't know that it's you know super realistic, uh, but it's it's super cool uh, it, just in terms of the structure of the film. I, I think it works really well in the way of making him kind of a boogeyman character in some ways. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's probably what Singleton's going for. Is there is a moment a in statement the, about institutions? Yeah, in that pullover scene, uh, I just happened to notice what was uh, announced on the radio that it had been one eight seven involving a blue Volkswagen Beetle, yeah. which is the exact kind of car Cuba Gooding Jr. is driving. And I thought this was going to turn somewhere else quick. Oh, yeah. Had you not yeah. seen the film before? Uh, I, I well, I wasn't thinking about it. Gotcha. You know, and I just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. oh yeah, okay, because yeah, I knew gotcha. how it ended, but at, at that moment when I heard that, I went. Wait, what? Yeah, it's a. I caught that too, um, but I didn't. I was like, well, that's an interesting choice. Having you know, didn't notice it the first time I'd seen the movie. Uh, but yeah, it's it, 
that's that's a sly touch by Singleton. I, I would be curious to talk to him about that that choice. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the choice would have been to make the audience go, "Oh shit, is this about to get a lot worse?" And I wonder about our viewing of that scene and just the sort of uh, issues that we live in in a post Ferguson world that we're we're living in right now. You know, I mean, obviously Rodney King is. Uh, a huge moment of the sort of police abuse that is part of the conversation in the 90s. But I also think how this cycle of violence has sort of recycled. That uh, well, That's what happens when you don't resolve right. a, 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 an act that you know has a, a violent impact on a society. I mean, it's, we're living through Columbine every you know three months, quarterly, for the last like three years because we didn't resolve Columbine when it happened. And again, obviously that's a totally different thing than you know racialized police violence. But I, I think they are both similar in that they are, you know, societally scarring acts of violence. And I think you're absolutely right, though, Dustin. They, it is repeating itself because I don't think we really unpacked that as a society when it happened. The closest we got to unpacking it was with the OJ trial. And we didn't really unpack that very mm-hmm. well as a society. We didn't unpack that until 20 years later when OJ Made in America came out. And even then... Unless all 300 million of us were forced to sit down and watch it, I don't think America fully unpacked it still. No, still not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's another uh, aspect of the conversation regarding race, and that is gentrification and simply ghettoization. How uh, cultures uh, do tend to centralize and concentrate themselves uh, within, uh, based on racial lines or economic lines also, um, but typically racially. And uh, Fishburne's got this great little sermon he gives, right, where he talks about how what's happening is these property values are being driven down, the presence of uh, con- the, the, the types of businesses that encourage the society to kill themselves. So we've got liquor stores in every corner. We've got gun stores in every corner. You don't see that in Beverly Hills. And all of these things are creating a situation in which uh, these people are killing themselves and, and also running down their communities so that the property values go low that others can come in and buy them at low prices, do improvements, and then sell them again at higher prices and make a killing. Uh, gentrification is not something we've ever dealt with specifically here on the Good Trash Genre cast, but um, it's an interesting idea. It, it is interesting, and it, it that scene could very easily have come across as Furious Styles. Uh, preaching about how to be black to other black people. And Mm -hmm. uh, I obviously am not qualified to uh, decide whether or not it fully makes that turn. I don't feel like it does, but I feel like it really treads that line of John Singleton's screenplay coming pretty close to, uh, you know, there's a specific word for it and I can't remember what it is. uh, in you know, and, you know, cultural discourse uh, when that happens. Um, But I mean, how did you feel about that? Uh, Do either of you have any thoughts? Did it ever come across to you that he was uh, getting a little too soapboxy uh, instead of, you know, with the members of his community, instead of appreciating, you know, the societal disadvantages inherent to living in Crenshaw? And I think, wait, are they in Compton at that point in the movie? They go to Compton I think that that, speech. That's what I thought. Yeah, they go to Compton from Crenshaw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you guys feel like Furious Styles is getting a little bit too much on his soapbox to this this community that doesn't have a whole lot of choices? So here's a reaction I had, um, and it's based on some other things I'm doing. So I'm I'm currently in a class of Theologies of Resistance, and uh, this week we're looking at um, some writing and some speeches by Martin Luther King. Jr. and uh, two of them are like the the three evils of society sermon and also um, the other America 
and both of those messages, along with a report he gives to the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Council, talk a lot about how uh, w- ways in which African Americans can reclaim power. Um, and while King does this amazing dissection of what capitalism does, capitalism is a structured system in which exploitation happens, and that any system that structures that exploitation is fundamentally sick, and that kinder, gentler exploitation is still exploitation. But in the same breath, it seems, and this is something that we've been discussing in the class, not just myself, that there, there, there's a strange way in which if you use the tools of the empire, if you use simply gaining more capital, if you use sort of you know localized investments and that kind of stuff, and you try to beat the empire at its own games, what you do is you might indeed get some dignity, respect, and uh, growth for your community, but you're still playing the games of the empire. You're still playing the games of capitalism. And as a result, there still is going to be some level of exploitation that goes on there. And so the whole time I listen to Furious Styles talk about you know, black in, uh, investment institutions, talking about black businesses, and uh, making sure that we take care of our business. That way we have our place here. I, I, the whole time I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what the other solution might or might not be, but it feels like you're trying to beat the empire at its own game, and there's a fundamental flaw in trying to play it that way. And yeah. this is, I mean, I'm, I'm talking way out of school to be commenting here. I think, and again, I, I, I'm, that's important to acknowledge that we are talking out of school, but it's important for us, I think, to try and reckon with this as best as we can as we unpack this film. Um, and I, I, the reason I, I wanted to bring it up as a talking point as part of the film, because that is often the talking point that um, more, more conservative me- media will tend to go to, right? When we talk about police violence in black communities, their their go-to out of actually addressing that is say, well, what about black-on-black crime? Which is, you know, what you'll hear fucking Geraldo Rivera and, you know, whoever. And again, Geraldo, not exactly like a bastion of conservative belief, but still will go to that old line. Right. I mean, this is the guy that said hip-hop is worse for communities than, you know, police violence. Um, that's That's not something I made up. Geraldo Rivera said that. So that's that's why I think it's important. Again, the conversation has changed a lot since 1990, yeah. uh, 1991 when this movie came out, 90 when Singleton was writing it. We have started to talk a l- about a lot of other stuff in the intervening like 28, almost 30 years now. Um, but that's why I thought it was important to address that, right? Because that is the talking point that that is often gone to when we try to, you know, hold the society's feet to the fire on police violence. Is well, what, look at Chicago, which is code for look at black and black crime Mm -hmm. so that's why i thought it was important to point that out and i think you're right dustin i think that does kind of tie back into the idea of trying to beat the empire at its own game is look the only way you're not going to get the people in power to acknowledge these things the only way you're going to be able to succeed is you know through community organizing probably but you know when community organizing comes across as i know better than you it doesn't serve anybody true so that, that's why I thought it was important to talk about. Um, Arthur, did you have – I mean, you, you, you good? Yeah, okay. good. <laughs> um, I, I think you're, that's an interesting thing about the gentrification, though. And, I mean, we live in a city that is, you know, for the last 15 years probably been going – I mean, I've lived in Oklahoma for all of the last – or Oklahoma City for all of the last 15 years. I know you guys have been here for, what, the last 5 and 10-ish? Uh, about 10, about yeah. 8 now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so as long as I have, you know, been living in the city, uh, as long as I've been, you know, a teen and forward – 
gentrification has been happening in a pretty big way in Oklahoma City. And, you know, right as you guys moved here, was it was already starting. And the, the push continues. Um, and, you know, it's it, it's interesting to think about because if I was the age that I am now in 1990, I probably would not have lived in parts of Oklahoma City that I have lived in. Um, at the same time, though, I was a kid growing up in those parts of town because my you know, my grandmother bought a house there in the 60s and refused to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it is – gentrification is is a really messy motherfucker. Um, I said I was going to try to swear less. Uh, look, sometimes that's the only word you can think of to describe a terrible thing. That's why we have the Dalton tag on the show. Yeah, look, mm-hmm. the explicit <laughs> tag is for me. It is not for you two. Um, but, but, I mean, the the goal of gentrification is often a good one, right? Not all – you know, people, I, I don't think small family run real estate businesses have an evil goal in mind when they buy a dilapidated house and flip it and, you know, try to bring, uh, you know, people back into the neighborhood into a, you know, previously abandoned houses. I don't think there is ill intent there. The problem is it's turning a blind eye to the actual issues going on and thinking that, well, I'll just fix this house, and that'll fix everything. I've got the money to do that. Well, you do, but have you ever considered why this house is the way it is? Well, I I guess my issue with the whole thing is that it continues to perpetuate um, white flight in reverse at times. So we have white flight that happens as we have black inner cities and white suburbs, uh, which is what began in the 1960s. Yeah, with the 50s, with post-war redlining and all that stuff. Right. Look, I'm I'm, listener— this is a very long conversation. If you want to learn about the the stuff going on with redlining and the the post war housing economy, this is not the place to learn about it. Suffice to say, it, it was bad and it was segregated. It was segregated and it was continuing to do continually segregated. And I think one thing that has kept society from moving forward, in so far as it's kept us from moving forward together, is that we have become more and more atomized. And what gentrification does is it just creates a different sort of enclave within. I, I, I don't know what sort of community planning or civil engineering needs to take place, but I think it would be better in uh, to live in a world in which um, the wealthy and the poor were much nearer to one another because I think it would be much harder for the wealthy to ignore that plight. And I, I think things would – I'm wealthy. I mean, I'm talking about class right now, but also in terms of race. It's a lot more difficult to objectify a particular race of human beings if they're never around. I grew up in a uh, largely Native American community, and it was interesting because there were not that many Hispanics, and there were hardly any African Americans. And I would see that, oh, well, Indians, you know, they're, they're one thing, right? That's, that's just mm-hmm. – that's fine, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's like, like white people gave them the honorary pass, you know. Uh, because being, they grew up around them. Because they grew up yeah. around them. But not Mexicans. Yeah. But not blacks. Yes. Well, and I think that's the root of a lot of rural racism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of rural areas in the United States that are, are a little bit more, you know, state integrated throughout. And obviously these are places that are, you know, closer uh, to the northern side of the Mason-Dixon line, but there are plenty of rural areas that, you know, were not always super segregated. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's – you don't need me. There are plenty smarter people than me. There's research out there that will show that this is the root of, you know, bigotry and prejudice is people growing up around only people that look like them and behave like them, right? And, and I think you're absolutely right is when you have communities that 
do look like our own demographics, not just racially, but also socioeconomically, there is more empathy because you're not talking about an other, you're talking about your neighbor. Right. Um, And I, I, I think... That that's the crux of the weirdness with gentrification is it does encourage that to take place. It encourages people who would not otherwise live in communities that have become disenfranchised to go get into those communities. I mean, we're seeing that a little bit with Detroit over the last couple of years with these attempts to bring Detroit back from the recession. But yeah, man, it's it, it is a messy issue, um, and obviously we're you're not going to solve it here. No, um, but uh, yeah. I, I, I can't think of very many films that talk about gentrification so explicitly. Right. Uh, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. So good trash first, and I definitely want to spend some time with that. Also, we've got to talk about the treatment of women. I, I mean, oh, man, Doughboy's got some problems. Mm-hmm. Rick's yeah. got some problems. Everybody's got some problems, right? Uh, it's, you know, words used to describe women are not okay in this film. and But yep. they are also – it is – it is representation rather than endorsement, I think. Yeah, oh, for sure. No, single time. I mean, that's why Regina King's character, and man, this movie needs more Regina King, yeah. as all films do. Uh, that's why her character has that moment where she calls Doughboy out, right? Uh, and that's why earlier in our reviews, I did talk about, you know, I it bums me out that the female characters in this film are underserved because it is clear that Singleton recognizes this being a problem in, in these men's lives, right? He, he recognizes that Trey... And and Ricky, and even furious to some extent, um, because Angela Bassett's character—I um, forget the, the uh, mom's name. I forget Mama Styles' name. I don't remember Mama Styles having a name. Vera. I can't remember. Uh, but you know, when her and Furious meet at that restaurant to talk about what's going on in Trey's life, you know, she she calls him out as well. I mean, there are moments where the the misogyny of our, our male leads does get checked, but it, it does feel like there's at least a scene or two missing that really, really cracks it open a little bit more. And I, I wonder if if we had had more screen time from any of the female characters in this film that it, we maybe could have addressed it a little bit more. Yeah, and there are ways in which they, they, they come off. Not only um, we have the sort of degrading terminology used to describe them, but they, they, are, they come off shrill, right? Uh, there, mm-hmm. there, are, there are moments in which uh, Mama Styles is um, dressing down Lawrence Fishburne, and it is a moment in which you see that, and it reads as a moment of emasculation. Does, okay. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it, and, and not in a good way. Is it, this, the powerful women, what they do is they, they, they make men feel weak. Yeah, I, I think there's maybe a little bit of that in that scene. I, I, for me, it comes across Reva is um, Angel Bass's character's name, by the way. Oh, good. For me, it comes across as Reva reminding Furious that, you know, you you showed up when it was convenient. You showed up when things got hard, and you're right. I did need you to take this angry little boy and turn him into a man, but I think she's reminding him of his responsibilities um, and also reminding him that, you know, they're parents together. You know, right. th- it's not one or the other. But I, I, I guess you're right. I think there, there is that reading is valid. And Brenda's reaction at the death of Rick. Yeah. That's so. I mean, that, that's the stronger example. You're absolutely right. But for me, and again, it's it's not any one of these things, right? It's all of these things together sure. because that that relationship between uh, Doughboy and Ricky and and their mom is like the crux of this film, right? It it is the this message that she's giving to Doughboy that you're no good and only your brother is good. 
and that is the crux. I mean, that is what this film is about, right? Mm-hmm. Is you know the world is telling good Ricky for nothing. You just like your daddy. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and Ricky is great, and don't hurt Ricky. I, I mean, the writing on this film foreshadows what happens to Ricky. So I mean, it does so in the, in the scene when they're kids, right? Yeah, and Ricky gets the football taken yeah. from him. Um, Ricky is always going to get himself in trouble, and Doughboy is going to bail him out because Doughboy is a little bit more street smart because, you know, mom was mean to him, and he was not in the house as often. I, I mean, that's yeah. – but you're right. I mean, that in conjunction with that Reva scene, with Trey's relationship with his girlfriend, which is messy. It's, it's not good. Pressures her for sex. Yeah, it's yeah, not. It's, mm. it's bad. It's very not good. Um and yeah, there's a postscript that tries to write it all away and make it okay. But look, I, I, yeah, seventeen-year-old boys be horny. I mean, that's it's truth. Yes, absolutely. It's a fact of life. It is one hundred percent a fact. But here's the thing: seventeen-year-old go- girls are horny too. That's, fact of that's, life. Teenagers are horny. Yeah. Uh, and, and I they feel didn't like sell those teen beats for no reason. Exactly. I mean. Oh, man. Yeah. Tiger beat. Yeah. <laughs> I, for shit's sake, Teen Cosmo is like having more realistic conversations about sex than anybody. Yeah. Uh, but it, it feels like a young man's perspective. I mean, John Singleton's 23. I mean, yeah. he's young. When he I think when he has the idea of film, he's got to be younger, 21, 22, probably. Yeah. If not, I know he's this is the idea he had sat on during film school and things like that. I mean, yeah, he's, he's young when this yeah. movie gets made. So it's... It's hard to fault the guy, but at the same time, like, if you're going to tell stories, you have to talk to people that have different experiences than you. Um, And, again, there is clearly a a place in John Singleton's heart for what women in this community are going through. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly. He clearly has empathy for, you know, the the sons and husbands and, you know, fathers and, you know, all all of the the men that are being killed by this system. Um, There is a, a lot of love and respect for the women in this community i think coming from john singleton but it it's short-sighted a little bit and again i don't i don't want us to be you know bagging on the movie too hard because there's so much that we like about it and i think right. so much that it gets right and that that's why i'm trying to be a little bit of an apologist i guess for its missteps because look we all fuck up and john yeah. singleton hasn't had the chance to make a film and again does he make another film later for brothers that fridges the mom? Yeah, he absolutely does. I mean, we're these are conversations that were not happening about representation in film. And I mean, we were barely talking about representation uh, for uh, African American yeah. people in 1990s American cinema. We definitely weren't talking uh, about you know the the gender um, representation issues that we're talking about now in 2018. So. Look, I, I I feel bad that I'm being an apologist, but I I think it's important to try and meet the film on its own ground. I guess does that does that make sense? Am I am I being too nice to John Singleton right now? I guess I, I don't think I don't you're being think too so. nice. Um, but that, 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 that's my take on it. I mean, do you guys have any other feelings on on gender in this film? I guess what I would say regarding the specific women uh, depiction of women is that it is a man's uh, perspective of women and uh, that man's perspective framed by its moment. And so yeah. if that if that comes off as an apology as well, um fine so be it. Because, I think you're right. I mean um, that is that is sort of uh the stereotype of mom, the stereotype of girlfriend, the yeah. stereotype of sister in those uh communities. And so 
as a man trying to write about I would say in all communities, not just yeah. in that oh, yeah. community. Yeah. yeah. So Mom's the warrior, the girlfriend's the prude. I mean, you got those kind yeah. of general yeah. stereotypes in any societal, American societal culture. Yeah. And Especially so he, if you're a young man trying yeah. to draw a female character, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the movie is boys in the hood. And, you know, yeah. It's not about the girls. Yeah. And so that are women. And, and so, Girls in the hood are always hard. Man, I would listen to that track. song. Damn. <laughs> but that's, I mean, and that's the thing. It's not like, I mean, shit. Queen Latifah was around. Jada Pinkett Smith was around. Regina King was around. There are, you know, there is art for black women around in the early 90s and yeah. the late 80s. And that that's kind of why it does, it does bum me out, even though mm-hmm. I am trying to be apologetic. Um, but I, 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 you know, I think credit is due, right? I mean, at the very least, he does have characters address these issues verbally, right? Yeah. Um, do you feel like, how successful do you feel like those moments are, especially like specifically Regina King with uh, Ice Cube is the moment that I'm thinking of, but even Reva and Furious together at the restaurant. I mean, Arthur, does that work for you? I think they just kind of get lost in the conversation of the bigger, bigger, quote unquote, bigger conversations going on at large. I think I think it's maybe almost a side note and it kind of gets forgotten if you're not looking for it, maybe. And I don't know that it's prominent enough to be of note or i think it's just we've mentioned it let's move on kind of a thing yeah and and maybe there is something there of him knowing john knowing that that's not his his story to tell but he wants to speak to it maybe um but he recognizes the issue but he's not got the voice yet to get the words to articulate it okay I was just curious if you're good because it I, it really troubled me throughout the whole movie and I, I kept going back and forth on how bothered I was by it and you know how much slack should we cut this movie and you know I think at the end of the day I think the film works in spite of those things for me at least I, I tend to agree I do tend to agree but I, I do think it's worth um, discussing now we have to talk about the other gender side of the coin here um, if this were going to be binary because this film is um, and that is fathers and sons and uh, we got to talk about popularity. We're not ready for this. Uh, doing, do, doing dad, you know, and he's a great dad. Uh, he's a good dad. Well, I would say he's an adequate dad. He's because a trying he's, father. He's raised Trey, but Trey has some of the same opinions that, about women that Furious probably does. And yeah. I think, I think John Singleton does a good job in his screenplay of drawing that line between Furious's um, appreciation of female attention, but also kind of his disregard for female inner life. Uh, and Trey kind of has that same character attribute. And again, I think that is one place where it becomes very clear this is depiction, not condonement. Right. Right. Um, because I, I think that is one thing that Furious gives Trey that he probably didn't mean to. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff with Furious, I think. Uh, what a character, right? Yeah, great character. I do love that Angela Bassett does sort of put him in his place uh, with regard by saying, what you did is just what you should do. What you did mm-hmm. is what women have been doing for thousands of years. It let's, is a good moment. Um, so let's just make sure, you know, it's not heroic to raise your son. That's just parenting. And, and I think yeah. that, that is a little bit of a lie that Furious tells him, right? Um, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say lie, but it, it's kind of a somewhat a truism. Uh, the You know, anybody can make a baby. It takes a man to, to yeah. raise one. Um, yes, but also that's just what you should do. And right. I, I think... It's presented as this this binary um, to, to revisit that word, but you really, yeah, this is what you should do if you get somebody pregnant. That's the job that you have uh, rolled the dice on mm-hmm. if you're if you're having a unsafe sex. Um, 
but I, I love those moments early in the film, though, because I, I really, it feels, Furious is a hard ass. I mean, let's yeah. not kid ourselves. He's, he's a rough dad, but he yeah. is, he's a good dad. He's trying to impart some wisdom that has been hard won. Yeah. Um, you know, things, things like it takes a man to raise a child. There's no place for a black man in the army. Like, all of these things are coming from a place of, I know because I did it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm trying to convince you to not make the same mistakes that I did. And I, I think that is the strength of that character for me. Right. What is uh, – this is – I have an answer for this. And I, I don't know if I want to frame that as a question or simply just make the statement. But I, as I watch the film, it seems to me that what Singleton is suggesting, that the primary um, conflict that a young man, a boy experiences as he becomes a man is – fighting with a sense of inadequacy that the whole film is uh doughboy it is uh trey it is rick it is even chris and some of the other sort of side characters it is fighting with the sense of i want people to know that i am a man that i'm powerful that i'm competent right and that seems to be the, – the film really seems to wrestle very well with that, that there are moments that make you feel impotent. There are moments that make you feel stupid. There are moments that make you feel less than powerful. And, and, and what uh, a man needs, I think this is where we come into those, the discussions of masculinity. And uh, the toxic form of masculinity is that uh, some of the stuff that Doughboy does. The Doughboy tries to assert his – prowess his powerfulness his confidence his competence and he does so in you know pretty pretty crappy ways right pretty abusive sort of ways and uh, that's that's what happens you know the others on the street the guys that steal the football they're they're asserting their their power their their man their their quote-unquote manliness but they're doing so in a way that abuses and uh infringes upon the rights of others i i wonder if the film is suggesting as all the stuff it seems to be just swirling on the whole time you know when 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 rick is finally shot that's that's how uh that's how trey feels he feels he feels powerless and he wants to do something doughboy feels powerless and he wants to do something he gets his gun right to, to to be more powerful is perhaps the task of parenting with boys is to make them know to be confident in themselves without any need to make someone else less does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think that's very well stated, actually. Uh, like, and I, like I said, I was going to frame that as a question, but I thought I was just going to go ahead and say no, it. No, and I, I, that, that was the right call to just go ahead and say it. Um, for me, I think that the, the moment that that gets distilled is uh, when Trey tries to get Furious' gun, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we have that moment early in the film where you know their house gets broken into uh, when Trey's still a kid. Um, and we set up that Furious keeps a gun by his nightstand. Um, and when Furious and Trey have that conflict, it it doesn't exactly address that issue. But what it says is this road you're going down has consequences. And the only way that Furious knows to illustrate the consequences is you are going to have to kill me if you want to leave this house with that gun. And that, that's the only way he knows to make Trey realize the weight of what he is asking him. You know, th- this is what you're asking me to let you do, Trey. Mm-hmm. You're asking me to let you kill someone. I'm going to make you do it right now if you want to leave this house with that gun. Um, now, where I, I don't know that it totally nails it is it, it doesn't make that suggestion that um, 
Well, no, I think it does, actually. The more I think about it, yeah, I, I think it, it shows us but doesn't tell us that Furious is trying to impart that to Trey, that violence, you know, asserting your dominance over somebody does not make you a more competent, a more capable, a better, more fulfilled person. It's just going to hurt you. It's mm-hmm. just going to lead to more heartache and more violence. Well, I think part of Furious' strength is that he misses a guy point-blank range in his own house shooting at him. And yet he's, you know, so he cannot quickly pop a cap. You know, he can't quickly efficiently distribute violence to somebody else, you know, and didn't lay this person out and kill him dead, you know, while he's in his home. And, and so he, he, he fumbles it, but he remains powerful. He remains a force to be reckoned with, um, despite the fact that, no, he's not very good at killing people, which I think is like a brilliant thing to open the film out with is this idea he tries to shoot somebody in his house. You know, it's a self-defense sort of situation. We can talk about the ethics yeah. of that. But he he tries to do some street justice and is unable to do so. And the film never flinches from that and, and says, but this is still the most powerful character in the film. Uh, without a doubt. And, I mean, I'm Furious reiterates that. Because Trey has a line about, like, I wish you had got him. Yeah. And Furious says, why? Why? Just mean another one dead of one of yeah. us. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I think that's what Furious does try to impart is any violence you do um, is going to have consequences, especially when you do it in your own community. Right? All, all that does is take people out of your community that could potentially make it better, that could come around. You know, all, all that does is bring trauma. Um and I, I really like the ways in which the film addresses that Furious was in Vietnam without, like, really talking about it. Because I think it says exactly as much as it needs Yeah, it doesn't to, right? man him up too much, which is good. Well, it it just gives him a realistic reason to have opinions about violence, yeah. right? Because I, I I don't know how, how well this film would work if Furious was, a, you know, a retired gangbanger. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think it would be really interesting, and I, I would like to see that movie, too. Um, but... You know, it, well, if you want to see that movie, go listen to Good Kid, Mad City, I guess, because that's, yeah. you know, Kendrick Lamar's story. But I, I, I think it does a really good job of of using his former military service to have yeah. give him a reason to have opinions about violence, yeah. right? Well, I think Minister Society is kind of the flip of that with Sam Jackson's character, oh, right? Oh, yeah, He's yeah. The, he is the other, you know, what if mm-hmm. uh, Furious was a drug dealer and what if he was this you know, OG-type character rather than a that kind of military background. I totally forgotten. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. We character. see the, we see the other it flip. We see that flip side play out in, I think, minutes to society. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do really love that that reading of that though, Dustin. Yeah. That, you know that that is, I, I think, to take it a step further. If we're you know the, the, we're three dudes in here, uh, one of us has sons. Uh, I think the challenge is not necessarily that you can be competent and manly, but more so that the narrative you have been sold is a bill of false goods. Yes. yes. It's it's not even that. You can do it without doing what they told you. It, it is that what you have been told is a flat-out right. falsehood. Yes. Um, and I think it's really hard to learn that. It was for it's me. It's something I still struggle with. I yeah. mean, there are certain expectations, especially with my, you know, my in-laws, who are very, very, this is what it means to be a man. You work on the car, shoot the guns, yada, yada, yada. And that's very hard to come to grips with that, you know, especially at age 32 is something I still struggle with uh, and thinking about. And I think that's a, a bill for all kind of male centric uh, coming of age films is that idea of being lesser than not being, you know, trying to fight that 
that cultural standard of this is what it takes to be a man or this is what it takes to be powerful. Right. And I think that's something else this movie kind of cribs from Stand By Me. You're absolutely right. Right. And that's the kind of that's Gordy's arc is, you know, he's not a football player. He's not a jock. He's an artist. He's a writer. He's a storyteller. And that is, you know, something he fears makes him lesser than, you know, the bullies or lesser than uh, River Phoenix's character. Chris. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, And so I think it's just something that at least in up through the 90s as far as coming of age films go i think it's kind of the impetus of those films was you know what does it take to be a man and rising to that or reckoning with that sometimes more or less successfully i think yeah and i i think both uh and again i think singleton does such a great job i I wonder how much intention there is there drawing that through line to stand by me because obviously there's intent with the opening yes um and the the ways in which John Singleton says this biggest moment in Gordy's life in Stand By Me is just another day for Trey and Doughboy and yeah. Ricky. It's just Central. it's mm-hmm. just another day. Yeah. Dead bodies are not that uncommon. Um, but I think he does a really good job in you know if if that through line is to be assumed like the, he had intention to continue that through line. I think you're right that you know Gordy and Trey both learn similar lessons about violence and and you know what how that pertains to being a man. And they each pick up the gun by the end of the film, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels. Uh, that kind of intertextual connection with Stand By Me is just fascinating. I, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about it. Uh, when we talked about Stand By Me, I, I mentioned it was kind of the standard bearer of coming-of-age films. Uh, and I didn't realize the uh, use of it in uh, Boys in the Hood. I had totally forgotten about I it. I had forgotten it, yeah. So I... I, I you know, as soon as that scene starts to play out, I was fascinated because, you know, not only do we crib, let's go look at a dead body, but we also crib walking down the railroad tracks. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. The kid named Chris and the, the, the archetypes are there, right? The bullies mm-hmm. come in. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah all, all, the older boy bullies, right? But yeah. you're right. Where, where, where the, uh, the point of growth and, and realization happens for uh, our boys and stand by me is, is nothing. It is, it is a, punchline to these kids who are seeing death at their doorstep every day yeah absolutely so i think it, and it's vital to see that uh play out there i, I think just, you're absolutely right i mean that's that is one of the most vital things about the movie is uh the just how commonplace uh trauma is in in communities that see a lot of violence no. yeah, yeah. well that's all the questions i've got is there anything else just burning on the tips of your minds you guys want to discuss well, I mean, obviously, I think we should, uh, as, as we have throughout every episode of this marathon, uh, continue Arthur's initial question of ah. how does this function as a coming-of-age story for you? Um, Arthur, your initial definition personally was, uh, you know, does the film, you know, is there, where is that character growth? It, where is the coming-of-age? You know, does somebody yeah. learn something about themselves? I don't. I feel like it's wrestled with here. Mm-hmm. And I... We, we kind of see it play out, you know, that we we can assume or we are told rather that Trey makes it out and goes off to Georgia, I believe, and mm-hmm. goes to college across the street from uh, Regina King's character. Um, Different character. Regina King doesn't play the girlfriend. I forget who plays her. But, uh, yeah, but the girlfriend okay. character. Yeah, yeah. Who, unfortunately, does not have much of a character. Yeah. Um, but I... I I think for the most part, it, it hits those points. I, I think uh, it, it's got the characters. Uh, we're we're kind of challenging those ideologies. I just don't know that there's 
a lot of growth that we see. And so I'm not sure that it's hitting all checking all the boxes. I think it works in that some regards, but I'm not sure I'm in love with some of the character moments. Yeah. For, I, for, oh, go ahead, Dustin. I was thinking exactly the same thing. I think growing older is not the same thing as growing up. Yeah. And these characters grow older, but yeah. I don't I don't know that they've grown up. Yeah. And I mean, Trey knows – he knows all sides of the coin, I think, at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily know that he's really changed course. He's gotten out, but that's not necessarily the same thing as growing up. And I, I think uh, – for me, I mean, uh, you know, we talked about my definition being, you know, this this is static truth. Is it emotionally true if it's not mm. factually true? Um, I, 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 I always hate, I hate text. I hate, I hate text buttons in films, um, unless it's a fact based story, and even then, I don't love it. Um, I don't, I don't love it in films like this. I really wish it just ended. That said, I get it. I, I think Singleton wants. Wants the audience to know that Trey has a happy ending. It, mm-hmm. it wants to give Trey that happy ending because Singleton has the you know the the empathy and the, you know the emotional intelligence to say happy endings are not a commonality in in this community a lot of the time. And I, I think it was probably important to him to give you know those characters a happy ending, even though it you know kills Doughboy um, mm-hmm. off screen. And I, I think that is the point about not all these characters growing up. They don't even get older. Um, as you said, getting older is not growing up. Doughboy and Ricky don't even get to get older. Right. Um, and I, I think that that is more Singleton's uh, point, I think, is in these communities, coming of age is not a guarantee. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it, it it's, it's skewed uh, not the right way. Yeah. Um, there's a, a really great... Um, uh, actually, it's from a... Uh, to bring up Kendrick Lamar again, it's from the Kendrick Lamar album to Pimp Butterfly, that last track where he's, you know, cut together and manufactured this conversation between himself and Tupac from an archive interview uh, where Tupac talks about, you know, uh, if you make it past 25 as a black man, you're just tired. You just, yeah. you don't even have it in you to be angry anymore. And mm. it's, it's a really interesting idea um, just talking about growing up in, you know, uh, distant, violent communities. Uh, I, yeah. I hate, I hate to, that's the only words I can think of. where communities where violence is commonplace, I guess is a better way yeah. to put it. Communities that are, you know, living under institutionalized yeah. oppression. And again, I like that. It, it, once again, that parallel with stand by me, you yeah. know, when Gordy's telling his story of, you know, where everybody went off and in, in that community, it's, you know, the, the worst thing that happens is you, you die a hero or you, uh, you grow up to be a, a forklift operator or whatever. Right. I mean, that's kind of the, the yeah. mundanity is the, the tragedy there, but uh, the stakes are nothing compared to what we see yeah. here. And again, I, I think this is a good place to leave us as, as we talk about the the end for Doughboy. Um, those final like three scenes, um, the fact that Ice Cube, you know, ended up doing "Are We There Yet?" is a damn shame. Like because he is a good actor. Mm-hmm. He's not just yeah. like good for a rapper turned actor. He is a good actor yeah. in this film. Like that performance is is really astonishing. I mean, yeah. it's and again, it's not like. What Cube was able to do, I mean, for I'm sure you guys probably know this just because we like a lot of the same music and stuff, but for our listeners who don't know, uh, Ice Cube had, like, the most uh, safe growing up of the other members of NWA. I mean, he, and this is not, you know, a secret. This is not something he hides or anything. He he was kind of able to 
keep his head down and stay out of the gang life and drug life. But he knew people. I mean, easy. I mean, he had friends who who had to live this life. And I, I think that that is his ability is to take those stories that he grew up around and and bring it to the screen uh, and, you know, bring the character of Doughboy to life in a really real way. Because the scene where he he kills the guys that killed Ricky is just about one of the, the most upsetting things I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, it is it is a moment of violence that is probably more upsetting than uh, any moment of violence that I can think of. And, and, you know, I've watched a lot of movies the last month or two, and, and it is extremely unpleasant. And I think Ice Cube, you know, acts it so wonderfully. And again, um, I we didn't talk about this in review. I just wanted to mention it now that we're in spoiler territory that I I had forgotten just how much I like Ice Cube's performance. And that was why... I uh, I wanted to open the the episode with that quote that he has at the end of the movie because I think it really is kind of uh, the thesis statement that John Singleton is is giving in Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Uh, let's talk about the last thing that we do in this show, which is render a verdict: shell for trash, else or instead. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shell for trash, else or instead for Boys. In the hood. Yeah, I'm going to say shelf. I, I, I think it's great. I think it's uh, seminal viewing of American cinema in the 90s. Uh, so definitely going to put it on the shelf. Uh, I think you've got to check out Stand By Me. Um, it's a, a kind of other side of the coin, kindred spirit of this film, uh, direct influence, and uh, directly quoted multiple times throughout. So I think you've got to check out Stand By Me. Um, you want to talk about cycles of violence? Uh, I was just kind of thinking outside the box, get out of the coming of age thing. I was thinking Looper. Uh, the Ryan Johnson film with uh, Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, which has got some interesting takes on uh, violence and things to say there. I would also check out Menace to Society. Um, I think these are kind of the two movies that are seminal to this subgenre. Uh, really, I, I think they're the two important ones of the subgenre. I, I watched uh, Menace to Society today before recording, uh, but I also watched Don't Be a Menace, in South Central while drinking your juice in the hood uh, from the winds. And uh, really, if you've seen Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society, then you get 95% of the references in that film. Yeah. It's it's not cribbing on really any other movie but those two, uh, which I think is just interesting as a subgenre that's so niche uh, for that to be a thing. And then finally, I think you also got to check out Dope, uh, a kind of – Central L.A. coming of age film. I think it's L.A. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, it's in California. Uh, um, I'm going to double check, but I'm pretty sure it's South Central. Um, I was actually going to mention that too. Yeah, um, I, I actually thought it was uh, the uh, the the director uh, Rick Femi. Whoop! I almost had it. Here we go. One more time, Rick Femi. Woo! Yeah. Ooh. Ah, damn. I'm still I'm I'm still a little bit off. You'll but, get there someday. Uh, um, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, uh, and I think it is kind of a, a direct through line to to the, this film, and you know. Um, it's in Inglewood, by the way. So yeah, okay. not not oh, yeah. that far from yeah. from Crenshaw and Compton. Um, yeah, I think I love that movie. Right it's there. got some interesting character choices and just uh, kind of updating this tale for a more modern age. I think is is a smart way to go about it, and I appreciate Dope quite a bit. So those would be my else's with Boys in the Hood. That's right. You heard it here first, your listener. Arthur appreciates Dope. Moving on, Dalton Stewart. <laughs> well. I hope that one doesn't come back to bite me. <laughs> what do you say? Shelf for trash, Elser instead. Um, yeah, Shelf. I, I think it's probably one of the most important films of the early 90s, um, just in terms of letting the people who make money decisions in American filmmaking know that the not only is um, 
there a market for this? It, it is an ethical duty to make sure that uh, there is representation in not only uh, all films, but especially coming-of-age films. Um, and, and, you know, we, we haven't learned that lesson too great in the intervening 30 years, but, uh, I mean, because most of these, I mean, Dope is uh, an independent film, and um, all the films that I'm about to list are independent films. So, um, But I don't think any of the films that we were talking about, uh, at least uh, Dope and the two that I'm about to mention, I don't think any of them get made. Uh, without Boys in the Hood. Uh, my first recommendation is Justin Simeon's Dear White People, which is uh, what about what it's uh, like to be um, a young black person in this country if uh, you're about as far from Compton as you can get, and that's an Ivy League university. Um, and what is it like uh, in that setting? Uh, obviously, there's also the Netflix series, which I've heard nothing but great things about and have only seen the first half of the first season. Uh, but I love, love the movie, uh, which has uh, the first Tessa Thompson uh, first Tessa Thompson performance that I can really remember off the top of my head. That's the movie that I remember seeing being like, who is this person that's going to be the biggest star in the world if there's any justice? And uh, things have been going great. I'm super happy that that's working out for her. Uh, but it's also got uh, a really great cast uh, outside of Tessa Thompson. Tayona Paris, who is also in Spike Lee's uh, Chirac, is really great in, in that film. And so is uh, Tyler James Williams, who's you know kind of most notable for uh, his role in Everybody Hates Chris. But, uh, yeah, I, I really like Dear White People, and I think it's a really interesting pairing with Boys in the Hood. I would also recommend Ryan Coogler's uh, debut, Fruitvale Station, uh, about Oscar Grant, um, which is taking all the things that Boys in the Hood is trying to do in terms of realism and just taking it to the, the nth degree to really turn it up and be a docudrama uh, and try to fill in the blanks of a real person's last day. Uh, and that's, that's not spoilers what the movie's about. Oscar Grant got, you know killed by the transit police in, in uh, the Bay Area. I mean, that, that is what happened. Um, but I, I think between uh, Kugler's direction and his writing and um, Michael B. Jordan's performance, they, they really, you know, turn Oscar Grant into uh, a real person and a real character and make the audience remember that, you know, this was just not, this wasn't just a story in a newspaper. This, this really happened. And this, this father really did get killed. And these people really had to bury this person that they loved. Um, weird that we're going to invoke Joseph Stalin on this episode, but there's a quote that's often attributed to Stalin that uh, one death's a tragedy and a million's a statistic. And um, I think that is what is so great about Fruitvale Station and Boys in the Hood, which, you know, even though it's fictional, I think it still does a good job of telling real stories in a fictional way. Um, we have to remember that uh, the victims of uh, inner city violence and especially police violence are you know, real people with real stories. Uh, lastly, um, equally as sad, but a uh, little less, uh, you know, life and death. I finally caught up with Sean Baker's Florida Project, uh, which is a totally different kind of uh, poverty than that, that which we see uh, in Boys in the Hood because um, all of our main characters in that film are housed. And uh, the Florida Project is about, you know, hidden homeless communities in Orlando. And I think... Uh, is a really great film that, um, you know, it basically proposes what if the entire, uh, you know, what if Boys in the Hood was just that that opening sequence where they're kids. Uh, and that's kind of what you get from the Florida Project. Um, you know, violence doesn't really enter into these children's lives the way it does the, the kids in Boys in the Hood, uh, but poverty sure does. And um, it's a great film um, that is funny and delightful and 
really just treasure. And yeah, I, I just caught up with it the other day, so I'm probably looking for an excuse to talk about it. Um, but that that would be my last suggestion to pair with Boys in the Hood. Dustin, what about you? Alrighty, um, I'm also going to say Shelf. I like this movie a lot. I think it's definitely worth seeing. Um, if you want to burn down the house of racism in America and watch some more fiction film, um, two releases this year, Sorry to Bother You, and The Black Klansman, I recommend very highly. Uh, one of those based pretty tightly on a true story. So, yeah. so they're, they're, Sorry they're, to bother you. <laughs> yes, it's about Amazon. Yes, it's entire. Well, yes. M- moving on. Um, so I recommend that. Um, in terms of looking at uh, a city in the uh, throes of dealing with racism in the South Central Los Angeles, uh, the the one, the big daddy that starts it all for me is uh, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, uh, which is a, an Italian neorealist film for the most part, uh, looking at Watts just after the riots. And uh, so it's it's a it's a fascinating little movie, and I really really recommend it very very highly. I think uh, it would be a good time uh, to watch and pair with uh, Boys in the Hood. But you know, again, if you just want to get angry and see what's going on right now, uh, Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You are good places to aim as well. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our recommends. Your syllabus just got longer. I hear the marathon's going one more movie. That's how marathons work, Dustin. At least one. Okay. And uh, we still got like what two, three decades we got to get through here. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna. Move so one more movie. Well, for next week, one more movie. Okay. But there will be one after that. Okay. And another after that. I'm agreeing to one more movie. Okay. All right. Always we'll see you more. next. We'll see you next week. <laughs> uh, next week, uh, we're going to move in later into the 90s. Uh, Dalton's got his Doctor Frankfurter uh, costume ready. Dustin's Blair and Bowie. Uh, we're going to find out what it's like trying to fit in with the weird kids when we talk about the perks of being a wallflower. There are many, many, many perks. There, yeah. are, there are. There are several. I like free coffee. Um, I, I like it when people who know about things that I don't know about take me to do cool stuff. Um, have you a, paid a your film? dues? It's, it's, look, it's definitely a film that I can relate to personally a little yep. bit more than Boys in the Hood. Yep. Um, and I will not feel like I'm talking out of school quite as much. Yep. That's yes. for sure. All Correct. of those things are true. So there you we go. could be heroes. We just for one day. The, the fact that can we talk about how the cool kids in that movie can't figure out one of the most famous Bowie songs ever recorded? It's kind of absurd, right? It's a pretty well-known Bowie song. It's They're disgusting. Not, those kids are not that cool if they don't know heroes. I'm just saying. Yeah. But nonetheless, uh, we're going to have that conversation, and we're going to keep having those conversations here at the Good Trash Media Network, and we encourage you to participate with us because that's why we do what we do, because that's what makes watching the cinema so worthwhile. It's more than just 90 minutes and a bucket of popcorn. It's about the conversation. So you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For more Good Trash Media content like the Praise Down, head over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro today, as always, is an original composition by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. No, not that Aaron Rodgers, another Aaron Rodgers. This one does not play football that we know of. Our outro for this week is Ooh Child, performed by the Five Stair Steps. Things are gonna be easier Ooh, shout things
Things will be brighter. 